passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. I have a question. Who is really the authority in your life? Or should I say, who are the authorities in your life? Maybe students. I can tell you who the authorities are. The, author- the main authority is in your life. It's called mom and dad, right? They tell you when you can drive. They tell you where you can drive. They tell you when you have to be home at night. They give you a curfew. That's just part of having a mother and father. They are the authorities in your life. Can I get a, an amen, mom and dad? Amen. Oh, yeah, that's right. I want to make sure that's true. But just so you know, students, as you get a little bit older um, and you're not necessarily under your parents' authority, you still have other authorities in your life. When you get married, in some ways, your spouse actually sort of becomes an authority because your job as a spouse is that you would provide for one another and that you would care for your spouse and be sensitive to the emotional needs of your spouse and be there for your spouse. So what they need is something that you seek to provide and so they sort of become a a form of an authority in your life. Well, parents and a spouse could be sort of the conscious authorities. We know we need to be sensitive to and submissive to their needs. There are also unconscious authorities that each of us has. Like for us, probably one of the unconscious authorities in our life is something called the internet. Because when you get on the internet, you start looking at other people's lives, other things that people are doing, you suddenly start to want to follow them and replicate them. This ever happened to you guys on Facebook? You're flipping through, and it's like, why does everybody go on vacation? Why does everybody go to a tropical paradise? Maybe I should go to a vacation in a tropical paradise, too. And all of a sudden, there's this green color that develops on your face as you are getting green with envy because they have subtly started to become the authority in your life. Same thing with clothes or dress. What we see on the internet is sort of what we want to start to replicate and imitate. Well, this morning, we're going to talk about somebody who should be the authority in our life, someone we have to consciously make the authority in our life. This is not a a bad authority. This is a a good authority. In fact, this is the supreme authority that all of us should have, and his name is Jesus Christ. Now, if you are new at Crosswinds, we are just in the beginning weeks of a study in the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark, just so you know, uh, actually falls into two pieces. It's 16 chapters in the book. The first eight chapters are all about answering the question, who is Jesus? The last eight chapters are all about answering the questions, what did Jesus come to do? And the answers to those questions are this simple. Who is Jesus? The first eight chapters are teaching us that he is the king, the very son of God. The last eight chapters tell us that what does he come to do? He came to die on the cross in our place for our sin. This is why Pastor Jordan and I have entitled this series, The Gospel of Mark, The King, and The Cross, because those are the two halves of the book. Now, we are in the front half of the book, 
where everything about this is to establish the authority of Jesus Christ and to show us that he is the rightful king of our lives, the very son of God. The very beginning, we saw that a king in the ancient world, all legitimate kings, had a forerunner, somebody who went before the king, prepared the roads so they were smooth for the king, who prepared the people to look for the king. Sort of like the Secret Service always goes before the president. Jesus had a forerunner. His name is John the Baptist. And he didn't prepare physical roads, but he broke up hard hearts, calling people to repentance of their sin and confession of their sin. And then he kept saying, but keep looking forward because I'm not the one you should be looking forward to. After me comes someone whose sandals I am not worthy to even untie was pointing to Jesus, preparing people for Jesus, just like a good forerunner would do for their leader. Last week, uh, we continued in the Gospel of of Mark, and we know that every king has a coronation ceremony where he is crowned as king, and that's exactly the next thing we saw, Jesus' baptism. In his baptism, he is coronated because what we have is God the Father audibly speaks at his baptism and says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit visually visually authenticates Jesus because he says that he descends in the form of a dove upon Jesus. So you have Jesus coronated audibly and visually by the other members of the Trinity. Now, in the ancient world, once a king was typically crowned, one of the first things they did is they actually went and they had to take on some of the um, enemies of the kingdom that they now ruled. And that's exactly what we saw last week with Jesus, because what happens is the, the scripture says he was immediately driven into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Incidentally, uh, that wasn't a comfortable or an easy time. It was 40 days without food, with Satan giving him temptations constantly throughout that time. Satan was at his best. Jesus was at his worst, his weakest, as his life dangled between life and death in that state of weakness. Yet, Jesus never, ever gave in into sin. And he proved in that time that he is the one who is rightfully qualified to take on the ultimate adversary that he came to destroy, Satan, the devil. And of course, that picks up ultimately in the Garden of Gethsemane. So we've seen that Jesus has been announced as the king, he's been coronated as the king, he's been vindicated as the king, and now we come to the part we're going to be studying this morning, where... This next section of the Gospel of Mark is all about demonstrating the authority of King Jesus, the authority that he has in our lives and in this world. Today, we're going to look at two small sections that will talk about how he has authority to save us from our sin and also how he has authority over our lives. Next week, we're going to look at how he has authority over the demonic world And then we're also going to see later how he has authority over um, the fallen nature of this world. So what I'd like you to do, I'd like you to take out your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 1. Let's put our finger in the text. 
we're going to be reading and then studying a very small section, Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20. So please stand out of reverence for God's word as I read it and follow along with your finger in your text. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. That ends the reading of the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you've noticed, our text sort of breaks up into two pieces, and we're going to look at it in those two pieces, which are actually broken apart by headings in your Bible. So the first part is this. I'm going to give you the heading we're going to study it under. It's, it's this. Jesus' message is very simple. It's repent and believe. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, how I want to study this text is a little different than we usually do. What I want to do is I'm going to go through some of the key phrases in these two verses, just give you explanation of what they mean. And after we've gone through an explanation of what they mean, the application of what we should do about it will become uh, very clear. So let's go ahead and work through the first one. After John was arrested. Now, if you look at the chronology of Mark's account, he has just come out of his 40 days of temptation in the wilderness, and immediately we find here Jesus coming into Galilee proclaiming the good news. And it sort of appears like Jesus goes right from the 40 days in the wilderness, comes out of that, and goes right into Galilee and does this, his preaching thing. But there's this little clue where it says, after John was arrested. Now, what I found is I started to look at this. If you go out to the Gospel of John, which has more of an extensive account of this period of, of Jesus' life, you find it's actually about a five or six month period after Jesus is uh, baptized and he's gone through his temptations in the wilderness and Jesus begins preaching and John is preaching at the same time. So their ministry actually is concurrent for about five or six months. If you want to read that in your Bible, if you're going to look at that in your life groups tonight, you want to look at John chapter 3 verse 22 through John chapter 4 verse 2. In fact, during this time, John the Baptist says his very famous words, which are these, he must increase, but I must decrease. 
And he's speaking about John the, Jesus, his ministry has to increase. John the Baptist is going to decrease. And there's going to be this gradual change that takes place over about six months. Now, where did things actually start for Jesus? If you turn on the map there, Jeremy, what we find in the Gospel of John is that Jesus sort of has his first time overturning the tables of the money changer and cleaning the temple out, the beginning of his ministry. So Jesus is actually in Jerusalem, somewhere after the beginning of his ministry, after the 40 days in the wilderness. And then what he does is he slowly starts to work his way north through this area of Samaria. So you get into John chapter 4. We read the story of the Samaritan woman at the well. That's Jesus moving forward to Galilee. And at this point, John the Baptist's ministry is on its way down, winding down. Jesus eventually gets into Galilee. And at that point, John the Baptist has been arrested and he is completely off the scene. Jesus is now fully on the scene and he's in Galilee. Thank you, Jeremy. And I want to point this out to you because uh, you need to understand how Mark is writing his gospel. He is not writing an exhaustive history of Jesus. You see, he just left out about six months of his beginning of his ministry. He is writing a selective history of Jesus. Is it chronological? Yes. Is he putting things together? Yes but it's selective. He's pulling out little scenes of Jesus's life that all demonstrate that Jesus is indeed the king. He is indeed the son of God. And if it was exhaustive, it would be a much longer book than 16 chapters. So that just makes what's going, makes sense of what's going on here. Now, when Jesus is coming into Galilee, what is he doing? He is proclaiming the gospel of God. If you want to know what the word proclaiming means, it simply means preaching. He is verbally preaching the gospel, which, by the way, seems to have been God's chosen method for like forever to be able to affect change in people's hearts. The Old Testament prophets, they prophesied and they preached. Jesus is a preacher at this point. Billy Graham, he was a... Did God change any lives through preaching? Yes. yes. Which is why we continue to teach the word of God, because we believe God changes lives through preaching. It worked through Jesus, you know, it's, worked, it's God's chosen method. Now, there's a phrase in here I did not write in your notes. I apologize for that. It was really late at night when I wrote these down, but I'm going to tell you that phrase, and we're going to unpack that phrase. It's very significant. The phrase is this. What Jesus is preaching is, the time is fulfilled. In English, that sounds like a filler phrase. It is not a filler phrase. It is a phrase pregnant with all kinds of meaning. Let me take the word time. In Greek, there are two words for time. There is the Greek word chronos and the Greek word kairos. Chronos means sequential moment-by-moment moment time, where you mark time moment after moment. It's where we get our word chronograph. Because a chronograph you know, measures time, moment-by-moment. Moment, and they're no different one moment from the next. Kairos, though, means something different. 
Kairos means significant moments in time. The moments that stand out is far more important in history than anything that came before it or what came after it. So you have, in Greek, they would call them chirotic moments. For instance, D-Day. That's a chirotic moment in World War II. That's the moment when the Allies finally gained a foothold in Europe. It was the beginning of the end for Hitler. September 11th. That's a chirotic moment. Significant moment in world history. Everybody here who was around at that time and old enough to remember it can tell you exactly what they were doing and what was happening when they find out the World Trade Centers were attacked. Because it's an important moment in history. The birth of Christ. Historians have called that a chirotic moment because obviously it was so important that they divided history in half by it. Before Christ, B.C., after Christ, A.D. A.D. stands for the year of our Lord. In other words, how many years from the year of Christ's coming afterwards? Now, what happens here is when Jesus says the time is fulfilled, he is using the word kairos. What he is saying literally is a super important event in history is happening right in front of your eyes. Because the word he uses for time is a super important event in world history. It is happening. He also says this time is fulfilled. That's an important word. It's the Greek word pleroma. Sorry for the Greek, but this will be helpful. Pleroma doesn't mean just full. It means super full or completely full. The best way to understand this word is simply to go to the coffee bar. You see at the coffee bar, and you use that pumper thing, you put some coffee into your cup. But we always leave some headroom on the top, don't we? A little, little space, because if you don't leave that, when you walk around, it's going to slosh out everywhere. So the cup is mostly full. It is not completely full. Pleroma means super full. It is to take your cup and you just keep pumping until it gets to the top and it runs over the sides. So when Jesus uses this word pleroma, he says that the moment that is happening right now that is significant in world history is what all the events of world history have pointed to and are coming to fulfillment right now. So when he says the time is fulfilled, this is a super important event in world history that everything else has been leading up to. So this is not a throwaway phrase. It's a very important phrase that would catch people's attention. And what is happening? The kingdom of God is at hand. The long-awaited kingdom of God has now broken into this world, and it's right there in front of you. At hand means here, literally right now. That's so true, isn't it? They could literally touch Jesus with their hand because he had a physical body. He is, the kingdom of God has broken in. So this is a very important message that he is giving and getting everyone's attention when he gives it. And then he says, 
what do you have to even do to be part of this incredible world-changing moment that all of history has been pointing to? To be part of the kingdom of God. And it's so simple. Simply repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now what strikes me about this, it's so simple, isn't it? So simple to be part of the kingdom of God. There's not all kinds of things you have to do. It's belief. Believe in the gospel. And here's what I thought was interesting as I studied this. It's repent and believe in the gospel. Oftentimes, when we try to present the gospel to our friends and neighbors, I think unwittingly we present half of the gospel, not all of the gospel. People say, well, what does it mean to be a Christian? Um, believe in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's true, but it's not all of the gospel. Jesus says it's repent and be Leave. Repent uh, literally means to turn and head in the opposite direction. You know, it's when, you, when you sin, you confess your sin. And you don't just feel sorry for your sin, but repenting means I actually want to turn away from my sin and I want to make conscious life choices to keep me out of further sin. Now, like I said, oftentimes people do not want to give both sides of Jesus' gospel message. Because if you talk about repenting and confessing sin and turning away from sin, people don't like that. Because we like to say, well, I made a poor choice. It wasn't really sin. Well, I had a lapse in judgment. It wasn't really sin. Jesus says, no, it was sin. Confess it. Repent of it. Head in the opposite direction and believe in me. The two go together. Here's a good way to look at it. I put a, a penny in my pocket. So you guys want to try and steal from me? That's all I have. Here's a penny. I think the best way to describe becoming a Christian is like this. It's turning a penny. At the same time you turn to Jesus, you turn from sin. It's not just turning to Jesus, it's turning from sin in the same instance. Now, when we become a Christian, uh, do we stay perfectly turned from sin? Oh, of course not. We still sin again. But what do we do when we sin? We confess it and we repent of it. We physically and intentionally make life choices that turn ourselves away from the same sinful patterns of behavior that we find ourselves falling into. And here's what often happens. People say, well, okay, uh, I've trusted in Christ and I, I repent of my sin. Well, I'm, I'm doing this behavior that I keep falling into sin with. Every time I get together with that person, we end up doing the dumbest things what do they do? They keep getting together with that same person. Repentance is, I'm going to turn away and say, maybe I need to cut you out of my life for now. Because if I don't do that, I keep falling back into the same sinful patterns and behavior. So here's your application. Your application is this. We don't simply preach belief in Jesus, but we preach 
turning from sin and turning to Jesus when we share the gospel message with our friends and neighbors. The majority of times the gospel is preached, it's simply believe in Jesus, but there's two parts to it, not just one. Now, let's continue our way through the text. The first part we've learned is that the gospel message is very simple, repent and believe. But Jesus' call to follow him is hard. It means giving him first place in my life. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. We follow the same way through this. We'll take some of the phrases and give you explanation. And then at the end, we'll wrap this up with application. The first phrase you need to understand here is it was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. So you know, the Sea of Galilee is literally not a sea. It is an inland lake. Jeremy, go ahead and put that up for him. That shows you the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is 13 miles long and 7 miles wide. It exists about 682 feet below sea level. It was an extremely popular lake for fishing. In the time of Jesus, it had 16 harbors on this small lake. And I say small because 13 miles by 7 miles is really not that big. Now, uh, it was fed by the Jordan River of the, to the north, and it also, uh, f- the Jordan River in the south, flowed out of it. Josephus, who's an ancient historian that wrote around the time of Jesus, describes the Sea of Galilee and the surrounding countryside like this. Josephus says this sea and the surrounding countryside is a place of exceeding beauty. In other words, this sea is a highly fertile place that is filled with fish, and even the hills on the side are known for being able to grow all kinds of produce, a highly productive body of water. But I was able to learn there's actually 23 different varieties of fish that grow in the Sea of Galilee. And at this time, they were, these fish were caught and often exported to different spots around the world. Or I should say the ancient world, not the modern world, much smaller exportation. Now the next thing we see here is about Simon and Andrew, and later James and John, the the characters. Who are these guys? Simon, um, he is the guy who eventually gets renamed to be Peter. So when we talk about Peter, this is the introduction to Peter, and his brother is Andrew. And we have another set of brothers, which is James and John. John is the guy who eventually is the Apostle John, who writes the Gospel of John, who writes the first, second, and third letters of John, and who writes the book of Revelation. So this is the introduction to them in our story. What were these fishermen doing? Casting a net into the sea. 
Let me give you some historical background for how this worked. The nets at this time ranged between 12 to 20 feet in diameter across. What they had is they had weights that were hung around the outer edge of the net. And these fishermen had learned to ball up the net in such a way and keep the weights in such a way, they took it and they threw the net as if they were throwing a big, huge whammo frisbee. The idea was when the net spun, the weights had the centrifugal force, which would extend the net out. It would land on the water flat. It would sink to the bottom with the weights leading the way, trapping any fish on its way down. How did they get the net up? There was often a rope that was run around the outer ring of the net that the fishermen tried to keep in the boat, or they, it fell over, they got it out of the water, and they, when it got to the bottom, they'd reel this rope in, it would cinch the t- edges of the net together, and they would bring the fish on board. So this is the idea of what these guys are doing, if you want to picture what it actually took place. And then it says this, as they were fishermen. Now you may wonder, why would I want to camp on this word fishermen? The picture that most of us have grown up with about fishing in the ancient world is that it was a low, a lower minimum wage kind of a job. That the fishermen sort of eked out a living. That's not actually what's going on at this time. I told you earlier that the Sea of Galilee is a highly fertile and productive sea, a sea that is filled with fish. And the fishermen would catch these fish, and they would bring them on shore, and they would sell these fish. And these fish would even get exported. So what you need to understand is fishing is actually a good business. It is actually a very lucrative business. It is the nice way to make money in this part of the world. And you begin to see little hints that these guys are actually not poverty-stricken, but they're doing pretty well. For instance, James and John, later in our text, when they leave to follow Jesus, they leave their father Zebedee with the hired servants. Like, their fishing business is not just in the family, but it's family plus employees who are working for, you know, Father Zebedee. They're doing pretty well. There's also another hint in here, and I know this is not probably the most firm piece of evidence, but I found it intriguing evidence. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 18, verse 15, we find that John the Apostle, who we know as one of these four people, he is actually well known to the high priest in Jerusalem. The text does not tell us how he is well known to the high priest in Jerusalem. But some scholars have speculated. Now, for instance, where do you make most of your extended relationships? Through just casual family or through the business that you are involved in? You make most of your new extended relationships because of business. Isn't that true? Because with business, you're forced to interact with all kinds of people. 
Some scholars speculate that perhaps the exporting of the James and John fishing business extended all the way down into Jerusalem, and perhaps the high priest has bought fish from them and their company in the past. Now, we don't know this for sure. It's speculation, but it's interesting to think about that because fishing is a very good and lucrative business, and that's an important piece of data to keep in mind as we get into this part of the text. Jesus is walking along by the Sea of Galilee at this point, and he says to Simon and Andrew, and later to James and John, follow me. Calls them to be his disciples. Incidentally, this is a little strange, and it would have caught the eye of people in the ancient world, because Jesus here is posing as a rabbi, and Rabbis didn't ask their disciples to come follow them. What usually happened was people applied and requested to follow the rabbi. Some of you who are going into college will understand this because you try to find the right college, then you have to apply to the college, and hopefully you can get into the college. That's the way it worked in the ancient world. The... Uh, you found a rabbi you wanted to study under, and you had to apply to the rabbi to see if you can study under the rabbi. In fact, you know how you have to take ACT tests to get into the college? Rabbis like Gamaliel or Hillel, they had a competency test that you had to take and pass to even be able to study under them in a very similar way to how it is done today. Now, as people would have read this, they would have said, why is Jesus recruiting his own students? Why is Jesus calling people unto himself? The text doesn't unpack all this, but the honest truth is that's always the way Jesus works. I don't know if you have known this, but the Bible describes each one of us as spiritually dead as incapable of turning to God. But God, in his grace, he reaches into our lives, he softens our hearts, he draws us to him. So before we ever choose to follow Jesus, Jesus has chosen to pursue us and called us to himself, just like he is doing with Simon and Andrew and James and John. Jesus is the one who chooses us. And I put this down here. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he is the one who chose you. Now here is where all this data starts to come together and to present a picture. After he calls them, it says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. To be honest, for years I have found that awkward and sort of bizarre and strange. If a guy was walking by where I was working and I was making a good amount of money and things are going well and he just turned and said, follow me, I would not drop everything and follow him. Would you? It seems like too hard of a shift. It doesn't seem to make any sense. 
Once again, the Gospel of John is helpful for us at this point because John writes from more of a chronological vantage point. He gives us details that Mark has intentionally left out. For instance, we discover in John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42, that John the Baptist had some people who were his disciples who followed him. One of those disciples was a guy named Andrew of our Andrew and Simon crew, and that Andrew had gone to his brother Simon and said, look, because John has showed us the one who is the Christ the Lamb of God. Remember, we've seen John the Baptist in his ministry baptize Jesus and has pointed people to Jesus to say, this is the one who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, when Simon and Andrew, when they're sitting there mending their nets and Jesus calls them, it's not like this is completely irrational John the Baptist had told them who Jesus is. So, you know, they make sense for them to follow Jesus when he calls them. But here is the point that makes it, makes it very interesting. Why did Mark not tell us these details? Why is Mark trying to emphasize that as soon as Jesus calls them, they drop everything and follow him. Here's why. Mark is trying to underscore the authority of Jesus's words. The fact that following Jesus means placing everything or placing him in front of everything in our life. Following Jesus means being willing to let go of a lucrative fishing business, if that is what God calls you to do, because Jesus comes first. Jesus has authority, because Jesus is the king. So you see, becoming a Christian is the easiest and the hardest thing to do. It's the easiest thing to do, because it involves simply repenting of our sin and believing in the gospel. But it's the hardest and the most costly thing to do at the same time because it means placing Jesus first in our life above everything else. This is what makes it so difficult. Now, here is our problem. For many of us, when we've heard the gospel, we heard this part of the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I can do that. That's easy. And then all of a sudden it got a little bit harder. Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, actually it says repent and believe. So I have to repent of my sin and head in the opposite direction and believe. Well, that makes it a little bit harder. But then all of a sudden it's this. Repent of the Lord. Repent of our sin. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then give Jesus first place in our life, above everything. And at that point, many people say, now we're getting carried away. I wanted a more moderate faith, a more comfortable faith. Yet that is not what Jesus asked for. 
He is the rightful authority in our lives. He is the rightful authority in this world. He is the king, and in our lives we need to treat him as the king. So the gospel message of following Christ is two things. It's the easiest thing in the world, but it's the hardest thing in the world because it means making him be king of our life. Now let me show you how this fleshes out. For instance, in these bullet points, following Jesus means putting him before our money. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, just go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Well, disheartened by the the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus does not call everybody to give away all of their wealth when it comes to following him. But Jesus does call everybody, he does call everyone to have him as first place over their wealth when they follow him. Because Jesus is king. He comes before our money. The other thing he comes before is our family. Following Jesus means putting him before our family. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, when Jesus says hate, he's not saying we have to hate our spouse and our children and our parents, absolutely. He's saying we have to hate our spouse, our children, and parents comparatively. In other words, our love, loyalty, and allegiance to Jesus, our King, is even a higher love, loyalty, and allegiance to Him than our own spouse and then our own family. Because following Jesus means He is the King. He also says this, following Jesus means putting Him before ourselves. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone wants to come after me, that's us, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Taking up your cross, the cross is a means of dying. In other words, Jesus comes in front of our conveniences. He comes in front of our desires. He comes even in front of our life. Loyalty to him is something ultimately we should be willing to die for. So I say that following Jesus, it's the easiest and the hardest thing to do. It's easy because it's repent and believe. But it's hard because he's the rightful king. He deserves the place of highest authority in our lives. And herein lies the challenge for us today. Today, how would you rate your relationship with Jesus? For you, have you said, well, I can believe in him. 
okay, I can believe. But repenting of my sin and actually making choices to turn away from my sin, well, that's not something I'm really willing to do. Yet that's something he calls us to do. Okay, I can repent of my sin, I can believe in Jesus, but it's really my life. I want to do what I want to do. It's my money. I want to spend it on what I want to spend it. It's my family and my marriage, and they come before you. That's not truly being a disciple. What Jesus calls us to is to give him the rightful place of authority to let him be the king of all of our life. That's the only place that he deserves to hold. Being a Christian, it's the easiest, and yet it's also the hardest thing to do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you, and I, we just want to confess that while it's very easy in one sense to follow you, Oftentimes, we don't take uh, what it means to be about being your disciple and giving you the rightful place of kingship and authority in our lives often too seriously. And for that, we are sorry. For that, we repent. We ask that this week that you would help us to place our love, affections, loyalty, and allegiance to you higher than our wealth, our family, and even our comforts, desires, and dreams. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at ChristToOurCulture.com. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.